So we are continuing in our theme on uh, the values of our church, the things that we are and that we'd like to be more and better and betterer. I always feel like better is the right word. Um, And we are on the penultimate one this morning, which is around being gospel-centered, which is made for a brilliant set of worship, because Dave said, what's the theme? I went, anything on Jesus and the gospel. So it's made for lots of great songs this morning. Um, I wonder how many of you have ever watched The Great uh, British Bake Off? Good. I like Elena. She's been really enthusiastic. Me too. And then there's all the kind of spin-off shows that have come from The Great British Bake Off, like The Great Sewing Bee, um, which I watch. And even though I'm absolutely dreadful at sewing and, and, and broadly hate it, by the end of watching the program, I think I could do this too. If I tried really hard, and, and my claim to fame is on the back of that, I managed to make an elasticated cover for our piano stool. It still has some of the safety pins in it, if you look really carefully. <laughs> but I was just inspired by watching it. And, um, and that's it. That's the, that's the sum total of all my sewing things. And, and the one that's been more recent is, um, is this one, The Great Pottery Showdown. Oh, oh. That's really popular. That's good because that's the one I'm talking about. The Great Pottery Showdown. And, uh, hey, Throwdown. Oh, well, that one anyway. (laughs) I was just checking that you were listening, Andy. (laughs) Um, And a few years ago now, um, as a family, we decided that it would be fun to see if we could learn to make pottery on a potter's wheel. So we um, looked around locally and the closest one where you could actually learn to do pottery was at Bentham. So we all went up to Bentham and camped up there for the weekend and we booked in for a half day session with all four of us to learn how to do pottery. And um, there we all are. You can see how long it was ago by the size of the children. Obviously Mike and I haven't changed at all. And we tried our hands at pottery. and just, just so as you know, the pots that you can see, they're the ones we actually made, all of us. It's good, this. I'm getting lots of nice vibes. <laughs> the thing that we had to learn, first of all, and the most important thing of all, was this, centering the clay. So you got your lump of clay off the big, big lump of clay, and you chucked it onto the wheel, or you threw it onto the wheel, roughly in the middle. And then you had to try and make the pedal work. I mean, it's a bit like playing the drums or trying to learn to drive when you haven't ever done it before. Trying to do more more than one thing at a time is extremely (coughs) challenging. So you had to try and make the pedal work at the right speed so that the wheel was going around approximately the right speed. Then you had to get your hands around this lump of clay and you had to kind of lean and sort of hold it. And, and everything about the clay wanted to go off to the side. And, it went, and sometimes it did. It just, whoo, straight off to the side. And you, you just had to keep holding it and, and keeping that firm pressure on it whilst it was going round and round to get it to be centred. And actually, until you get it centred, you cannot do anything else at all. You have to wait until that point before you can think about creating your amazing vase or your pot or your cup or your bowl or whatever it is that you imagine that you could easily make the first time that you ever tried to do pottery, you have to make sure that it is centered. 
You need to make sure that at every point you are working from a centred position. If you don't, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that happens because increasingly it's spinning off at an angle and it all starts going off and you just end up with a mess like that. I think that we probably made more messes like that than we made pots because it was a, a skill that we had to learn. On last week's great pottery throwdown, see, I'm learning, Andy, they made chimneys, really tall chimneys, quite similar to the pot chimneys that you see around here, actually, if you have a good look around. And they made these amazing chimneys. And the judges came round, because all these programs are basically the same format, aren't they? So the judges came round, and like, from, to my mind, all of them looked pretty amazing. There was one that was really not quite so amazing, but the rest of them. And they said, oh, um, we'd like you to spin them on the wheel. And you could see them looking somewhat anxious. These really tall chimneys were going to be spun on the wheel. And as they spun on the wheel, some of them were slightly off-center, almost imperceptibly off center and only the experience and expertise of the people judging could see like somebody like me just thought oh they all look centered but actually some of them were almost imperceptibly off center the value that we are looking at this morning is not how to make pots much as that is really interesting the value that we're looking at this morning is that we want to make sure that we are a gospel centered church. We want to make sure that everything that we create is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if it isn't, it will either collapse or it may be fine to some people, but it will not be actually centered on who he is. So what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be gospel centered? It's one of those things that you could easily say and everyone would nod in agreement with you and say, yeah, that's a good thing to be. But what does that actually mean, to be gospel-centered? Well, there's um, pages and pages and pages and pages of the internet that are given over to this very topic. So I didn't really read any of those. But I, I found this one quote, which I thought was really, really good and summed it up um, much more simply than pages of the internet. And it's by a guy called Ray Ortland, and he says this, the test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. I really like that. I felt like it, it held the two things together. It's not simply about our doctrine, although, of course, that is really important because our doctrine informs our praxis, but it's about the doctrine that we hold to and the culture that's created as a result of that doctrine. A simpler way of saying it is this, a gospel-centered church... It's not a church that merely believes or professes the gospel, but one that by believing the gospel is changed in its conduct and its community. Do you want to be part of a church like that? Okay, the rest of you can leave because this is the one that we're aiming for. A church that does believe, that does profess the gospel, but also is changed in our conduct and our community as a result of that. The gospel. Phil and I did a memorable Christmas morning service on this topic uh, a number of years ago. And um, so the word we're looking at is the word which is something like euangelion. 
You can say that, can't you? Evangel. I mean, that's the kind of where we're going with that. And um, the best description I found of this word was written by a guy in 1525. And his name was William Tyndale. And he was really important in the history of the Reformation. He translated the scriptures into English. So the reason that you have them in your hands and on your shelves at home is because of William Tyndale. So he's quite a significant guy in the history of the church. And this is what he said as a definition of that word. He says, euangelion, what we call the gospel, is a Greek word, really, (laughs) signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now, I think we thought that the reformers were all a bit doer, a bit serious, a bit heavy, but that is the most excitable description of the gospel that I think that I've ever read. You know, it's signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news. We all need a bit of that, don't we, at the moment? That makes a man, insert woman here as well, man and woman's heart glad. Ah, Someone needs food, I think. (laughs) And makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Okay, we're good at the singing bit. Less good at the dancing and leaping for joy bit. But that's the way that the gospel impacts our lives. You know, that's why William Tyndale felt it was so important to make sure that people had the scriptures in their own language. It was so that everyone could know what the gospel was. Everyone could read about Jesus. Everyone could know about him. And therefore, everyone could sing and dance and leap for joy. That was in William Tyndale's heart. Gospel-centered, good news-centered should make people joyful. Now, I don't think that's what most people think that the church is like. They don't think, oh, I want to feel really joyful. Let me go to church. I hope that maybe a few people think that these days, that maybe we're not quite as serious and solemn as once we were. But actually, if this is good news, then people should find joy, shouldn't they? and hope, and singing and dancing and leaping for joy in this place. The gospel, the good news, needs to be centred around Jesus. It needs to be centred around Jesus. And I want to read to you some verses of the Bible. I hope that that's okay with you. Um, I looked up every verse that had good news or gospel in it. It's eight pages of small print. From the New Testament, does that at least tell you something about how important this is? That the New Testament is gospel-centered, and we just want to be like them. And so here's some of the things that it says about Jesus. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then again in Mark, The time has come, Jesus said, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then later on in Luke, After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And so on and so on and so on and so on. It talks about Jesus 
talking about the good news. The good news is centered on Jesus. He was and is good news. He proclaimed good news wherever he went. He said, repent, turn away from your past, turn away from the way you've been following and turn around and follow me. He said the reign of the kingdom of God is here. Phil was talking about that last week. If this is a place where you can receive forgiveness for your sin, you can be cleansed, you can be free from guilt and shame. This is a place where you can find healing, healing for our souls, healing for our bodies, healing for our spirits because we are reconciled to God, our Father in heaven. It's a place where you can be set free from the kingdom of darkness and be part of the kingdom of light. You can be set free from the power of darkness and be placed into the kingdom and the freedom of God's light. This is the good news that Jesus was talking about, and it was all centered on him. Now, I don't know how contagious coronavirus is, but I know that the good news of Jesus Christ is extremely contagious, because everywhere Jesus went, people caught it. And that early church was caught up in an explosion of preaching and speaking the good news of Jesus. And so it says here, continuing in my, all my scriptures, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Right from the very beginning, they were caught with this virus, the good news, and they couldn't help but proclaim it and teach it wherever they were. And then later on in Acts, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. They changed country and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Paul, uh, yeah, Paul finding himself in Athens said, friends, why are you doing this? We too, too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And Paul's life is summed up by this verse, however I consider my life worth nothing to me, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The whole of the New Testament is centered around this truth that Jesus is the good news. And so to be gospel-centered is to be focused on the life-changing good news of God in Christ. His incarnation, that he came and was one of us, that he lived as a, as a human being on this planet, clothed in flesh like one of that us, that he's been through all of the temptations and trials of life like one of us. The good news is that he died, the perfect sacrifice, son of man and son of God. He was the perfect sacrifice for sin. He took our sin upon himself. He bore it. He died in our place. The good news that after three days, when he was like properly dead, God raised him back to life again. And hundreds of people saw him and they said, this is Jesus. It's the same Jesus. He's risen from the dead. This is the good news of the ascension where Jesus went back to his father's side and he sat down on the throne, symbolizing that the work was finished. It was complete. He had bought our salvation for us. This is the good news that we have. 
This is the good news that has been at the centre of the Christian church for a very long time now. In every generation and in every nation, this is the same good news. But you know, it's not quite enough just to know that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. We actually have to do something about it. And so if we turn to Acts chapter 2, and this is Peter's first sermon after Pentecost. And the first thing that Peter does is he talks about the good news. And from verse 21, it says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he carries on speaking to them. And after a while, in verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. So Peter preaches the gospel and he summarizes everything about Jesus. And then they instinctively know that they need to respond to that. They need to do something as a result of that. They need to respond to him by turning away from their sins and putting their trust in Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, and we'll start from verse 8. The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's a part of the gospel, isn't it? Not just that Jesus did all these things or was this person, but that we respond to him with our lives, calling on his name, putting our whole trust in him, becoming a new person, changing the orientation of our lives. It's like a Copernican revolution that we have, isn't it? For many, many hundreds of years, people believed that everything revolved around the earth. And then Copernicus came along, he said, excuse me, and they went, no, we don't want to listen to you. Excuse me. Actually, it's not like that. It's not like that. Everything revolves around the sun. Well, that didn't go down very well. Because, of course, we like to be the center of our universe, don't we? We don't want something else to be the center of our universe. And isn't that exactly the same? I am the center of my universe until I encounter Jesus. When I wake up from a long sleep and go, I'm not the center. He is. Jesus is. And my whole life needs to be reorientated around Jesus. Perhaps one of the best stories in the Bible for that is the conversion of Paul, Saul. And Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was an extremely well-educated Jew. He was passionate about the law 
to the point at which he believed that he should eradicate this world of all the followers of Jesus because they believed in another God, Jesus. And as a Jew, of course, he believed and followed the one God, Yahweh. And then Paul was traveling along the road to Damascus and he has this amazing encounter, this bright light, this voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting? Why do you persecute me? And Saul encounters Jesus. And in that moment, everything is changed. His whole thinking is changed. His whole life is changed by that encounter with Jesus. He is transformed. His conviction to destroy all those who follow Jesus is transformed into a conviction to share the gospel as far and wide as is humanly possible. Against all odds, he determines to share the gospel. He says these things, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says in Galatians, I never boast um, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and to the world. And again in 1 Corinthians, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that's what he said in the beginning of Romans, isn't it? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And you see what his processing is here. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's like, I knew all this. But it didn't make sense to me. I didn't see that Jesus really was the Messiah. Regarding his son, who was to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the whole rest of Romans is really an explanation, an exploration of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means. See, part of the problem that we have is that when we sit here, we go, oh, yes. But the danger throughout the church and throughout the church in history has been the danger of adapting the gospel, of changing it a little bit. And if you turn over to Galatians, which was only written a number of years after Jesus' death and resurrection you see that right early there was a struggle to keep the main thing the main thing when it came to the gospel. And I want to read to you a few verses from Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. And you'll see that Paul was feeling really calm about this issue, about the gospel. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. It's quite feisty, isn't it? In fact, the whole of Galatians is quite feisty. It's not the easiest book to preach from as a result of that, really. Because what has happened is the same as those chimneys that we thought about right at the beginning. It has become almost imperceptibly off-centre. 
hardly noticeable, certainly not noticeable to the Galatian church, who were probably doing church more or less the same as we do church. But to Paul, he could see that they were going off-centre. And though perhaps nothing too damaging was occurring right at that point, it wasn't going to be long before the whole part would spin off balance and collapse in a heap. This started so early, didn't it? So early. You would have thought we might have at least got a couple of centuries down before we started going off centre. But right from the beginning, and in the story of Acts, you see the apostles falling out over what is the gospel and trying to work it out and really fighting to keep the gospel centred and to keep the gospel the main thing. And it's been a continual issue throughout the whole of history. And I can't go into it in a huge amount of detail this morning, but there's three things that seem mostly to happen when we uh, adapt the gospel. And the first one is this, a temptation to add to it. That's what was happening in Galatia. They were adding to the gospel. They, were, they couldn't quite believe that all of this was by grace, by faith in Jesus just an act of grace, of the goodness of Jesus. So they said, well, you really need to keep following your Jewish traditions as well, along with the gospel, to kind of make, make sure, kind of belt and braces approach. You know, have the gospel, but also continue with these Jewish traditions. It's really interesting that later on, Paul says very clearly that he only circumcised Timothy in order that Timothy would more easily be able to speak to the Jews. He's very clear. This wasn't anything to do with Timothy's standing before God or faith or salvation. It was only to do with his communication. It would be easier for him to communicate the gospel and more acceptable to the Jews. It's so easy for us to add things in to our gospel we need to do this and this and this and this, and then you will be. But actually, it's not. It's by grace alone. Back to a different reformer, Martin Luther. By grace alone, by faith alone. It's about us trusting in all that Jesus has done for us. You may be a half-decent person. You probably are. But it's not because of that that you receive Jesus Christ. You may be a terrible person, but it's not because of that either. It's because Jesus died in your place. It's because it's a free gift to you to receive it. We don't need to add anything to the gospel, even good things. We don't need to add anything. It's simply by faith in him. The opposite of that is that we subtract things from the gospel. And if you look at many uh, what are called Christian deviations, you might want to call them cults or sects, what you find out is most often they have taken stuff away from the gospel, and the thing that is most often taken away from the gospel is the deity of Jesus. Almost without exception, that's actually the issue. So if you want to assess something, is this true? Is it right? Is it Christian? Then that's probably the first place you need to go. Do they believe unequivocally in the deity of Jesus Christ? Do they really believe that he's the son of God? Not that it's a title or that he was kind of partly it or whatever, but that he really is 100% the son of God. Because if you're taking away that part of it, 
And it's not the gospel. Another part of the gospel that is easily subtractable is our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, well, it doesn't really matter whether he really, really was bodily resurrected. I mean, it's a nice story and it makes us feel that he's alive. Rubbish! We need to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is fully alive, because if he is not, then he has not conquered death and he's not conquered sin, and therefore go home, do something more interesting. We need to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we take stuff away from the gospel, then we've lost the gospel itself. And I guess this is also true of the other two, but it's a kind of an altering of it. And that often comes more out of an overemphasis on something over something else. And though not absolutely core to the the narrow gospel. That's what prosperity theology does. It takes some verses and it takes the love of Jesus and it says, oh, you know, you pray and God will give you everything that you ask for and your life will be great and you will be rich and wealthy and drive your favorite car and be healed all the time. I mean, it sounds fab, doesn't it? That's why people go for it. But it's an overemphasis on something. Um, I heard just, I think, last year about a Chinese pastor who led an explosively growing congregation in China and everything about it was utterly amazing but part of his own story of faith had been spending three days in prayer and fasting and so he said that every person in his church had to had to spend three days in prayer and fasting otherwise they were not a genuine believer (laughs) now I'm sure that nothing can go wrong for you if you spend three days in prayer and fasting genuinely But it is not the core of the gospel. It is not the essence of the gospel. Even though it's a good thing and it's part of our Christian experience, no one can say you must do this, otherwise you're not actually genuinely a Christian. We just need to be wise to these things. We need to make sure that we have not become off-center, even just slightly off-center. We need to keep bringing ourselves back to the center. So, the second part of that quote I said at the beginning was this. The test of a gospel-centered church is its doctrine on paper plus its culture in practice. We've talked a little bit about the culture stuff actually earlier on in the values that we've been sharing. But it took me straight to Luke chapter 4 and to things that Jesus said. Because it says in Luke chapter 4 and verse, uh, we'll start verse 16, it says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't this not the kind of gospel culture that is centered upon Jesus that is kind of unraveled as we put Jesus in the center? That's what we see a place where good news is preached to the poor, where freedom is proclaimed to the prisoners, either literally or metaphorically, 
recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed. It's the year of the Lord's favour. And in that passage from Isaiah 61, it then talks about comforting those who mourn, providing for those who grieve, of a transformation for beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, garments of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It talks about rebuilding ancient ruins of restoring places that have been devastated. Is that not the culture of the gospel that we should expect to see around us if we have the gospel at the center of all that we do? And we just need to look at Jesus, a culture around him of love and truth, love and truth, of sacrifice and servanthood, of restoration and resurrection, of incarnation being with us and of intimacy opening a way for us to love and to be loved by our Father in heaven, of faith and fearlessness. Whatever you see Jesus is like in the Gospels, whatever culture he creates around himself, that's what we are supposed to be like. That's why it's been really good these last few years to make sure with the Do You Know Him stuff that we have been doing a series that's focused on the Gospels. Because it's easy not to. It's easy to think, oh yeah, that's quite simple. We know that. Let's do something more complicated. Let's do Leviticus. Let's not do Leviticus. (laughs) It's really good that we have come back many more times than we might have done to Jesus, to the Gospel, to what it's fundamentally all about. It's really good that we are doing stuff together with the church in Skipton that is gospel-centered, that is Jesus-centered, that keeps the main thing the main thing. Because as we do that, we start to see the culture of the kingdom, the culture of Jesus' rule expressed among us. A number of years ago, um, I uh, did Pilates for a while And um, they spend all their time talking about developing your core and your core strength. And, um, yeah. (laughs) It's a really great idea. (laughs) And one of the things that you have to do, apparently, uh, to develop your core and your core strength is an exercise called the plank. Yeah, some of you know about that, don't you? And, and you need to do it really solidly, like not waveringly, because that's not really good for you at all. And this, la- this, this week, someone gained the Guinness World Record uh, for, for doing the plank. And uh, I felt like it might be appropriate to have a picture of him. Um, and his name was George Hood, and he is uh, 62 years old, for those of you thinking I'm too old for all this. Um, and he's from America. Um, And his world record for the plank, some of you will know this, but if you don't know this already, was eight hours, 15 minutes, and 15 seconds. Anyone want to compete? I mean, five minutes, and I'm like dead for the rest of the week. You know, I mean, it's uh, like even that. Eight hours. And then after that, apparently he did a few press-ups because he thinks it might be quite fun to have a world record in press-ups as well. You know what, this doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't suddenly think to yourself, oh yeah, I fancy a go at that tomorrow. This guy was a Marine. He had years and years and years and years of developing his 
core strength. And you know, if you develop your core strength physically, it's not just that maybe your stomach is flatter, but actually that your back is stronger and that your posture is better. And out of that, everything else works much more as it was intended to do. Reminds me, maybe I should do some Pilates. <laughs> and actually, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we keep on working on our core strength, that we keep on making sure that the gospel is at the core, that Jesus is at the center of it all. Because if we are strong there, then we will stand up straight. And if we are strong there, everything else will function as it is meant to do. So this is not an add-on or an optional extra or something that we can probably get away with not worrying too much about. This is right at the center of it all. And if we get that bit right, then everything else will be right too. Because this is all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about the gospel, the good news. The good news that makes us sing and dance and leap for joy, that good news that's contagious that we want to share with other people so that they can sing and dance and leap for joy. So I'm going to hand over to David and he's going to lead us in singing.